0: The following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, March 10th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. I do not know if bad is the right word or if sad is a better word, but I sometimes feel bad or maybe sad, if that's a better word, for my kids. Uh, growing up in a generation with Netflix and Amazon Prime. And I say it this way because I don't think they will ever know the sweet agony of having to wait seven days for a cliffhanger on their favorite show to be resolved. I mean, they've got the entire thing at their fingertips, an entire season already there, pop the popcorn, watch a full-size movie, but a TV show played out and you never have to wonder what's going to happen next week. And if you miss the show, all you get the next week is previously on 24. You're stuck like with those little snippets of of what happens, you know. The tension, the anticipated resolution, kind of the ongoing development of the characters and their transformation through these processes, they're, they're all parts of a brilliant story. And the book of Esther is no different. And in fact, as we've seen the last few weeks, I, I think the book of Esther epitomizes all of the elements of a good story. As we've been trying to follow the contours the writer has given us, allowing the contrasts and the reversals that they build, heightening the tension and, and building in anticipation for resolution in our hearts, while at the same time, God doing what only God can do through his word, exposing various aspects of our heart and, again and again picking up our gaze to see Jesus and his goodness through this tremendous story this week is going to be no different as we pick up Esther chapter 5 this morning you may remember that last week we we ended on a cliffhanger and this week we're going to do it again so let me remind you previously in Esther um if we had the time, and this is the service where I've got the time, and you guys are so gracious, I'm not going to do it, though. I would try to kind of describe and paint for you that brilliant director's cut through the whole story of scenes and faces, but we'll just get to where we need to be. Last week, Queen Esther was faced with two roads that diverged in front of her, if you remember, a path of least resistance, of self-reliance, and of security, and a, a path of vulnerability, a path of weakness, a, a path of potential sacrifice because word had come to Queen Esther in the palace that an edict had been sent out throughout the entire Persian empire that a day was going to come 11 months down the road when everyone in the Persian empire was going to have free reign on a particular day to annihilate and plunder all Israelites throughout the empire. And Queen Esther, we know as readers of the story, is an Israelite. And she's not let anyone else know that to this point. But her cousin Mordecai gets her attention as he comes to the gate in sackcloth and ashes and sends word, Esther, this is going to happen. You're in the palace. You've got the position. You've got to do something. And two roads diverged in front of Esther. And we saw last week in a beautiful literary maneuver, I believe the writer of Esther directly quoted Joel chapter two last week in Esther 4 pointing back to a time in the life of God's people when God's people faced imminent judgment at the hands of God but God called them to repent called them to turn from their sins to repent that he may have pity and show mercy and we talked last week about how the response of Mordecai and and Esther through that echo of Joel I think indicates a change of heart in the lives of Mordecai and Esther something woke up in Esther. We don't get the details through the writer how it actually happened, but Esther's heart came alive to the God of the promise and the promises of God. Much like the prodigal in the story Jesus would tell centuries later, Esther came to her senses and began to make her way home. Better to die going in to see the king as a child of God than live the rest of my life as the queen of Persia. So Esther sends word back to Mordecai, and this is where the camera would cut back to Esther's face. "I'll, I'll go to the king. And if I perish, I perish.". Dun, 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 dun. Well this morning in Esther chapter five, we, we pick up the story, and again, the writer is doing something here, and I want to try to help you see it, because it's a beautiful literary move. Here in Esther chapter 5, and we're going to be super ambitious and we're going to try to get through chapter 6, the writer of the book of Esther is going to once again put those two roads in front of us and we're going to get to walk down them a little bit. The path of dependence and vulnerability and weakness of a heart alive to the promises of God and the path of self-protection, the path of least resistance, So let's pick up the story and let's enjoy the the brilliance of God's inspiration through this writer. After fasting, chapter 5, for three days and nights, on the third day Esther put on her royal robes and stood in the inner court of the king's palace in front of the king's quarters while the king was sitting on his royal throne inside the throne room opposite to the entrance of the palace. So whatever you need to do to see this, close your eyes, whatever you need to do, just picture this in your mind. And when the king saw Queen Esther standing in the court, she won favor in his sight. And he held out to Esther the golden scepter that was in his hand. Then Esther approached and touched the tip of the scepter. And the king said to her, what is it, Queen Esther? What is your request? It shall be given you even to the half of my kingdom. That's just an, an idiom that was common. It just simply meant he was predisposed to be tremendously generous to her. This isn't like a 50-50 prenup kind of thing here. I'm getting you half if you, you know. This is just his expression of generosity to her. So Esther said, if it pleases the king. All right, here we go. Let the king and Haman come today to a feast that I have prepared for the king. It's like, What? You were supposed to go in there and and ask the king to reverse his edict, not invite him to dinner. So the king said, bring Haman quickly so that we may do as Esther has asked. So the king and Haman came to the feast that Esther had prepared, and as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king said to Esther, what is your wish? It shall be granted to you. What's your request? Even to the half of my kingdom, it shall be fulfilled. So, if he was predisposed to be generous to Esther before, now he's fed and had some drinks. He's even more predisposed to be generous to Esther. So, Esther answered, My wish and and my request is if I found favor in the sight of the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, don't read the rest. Like, what are you expecting? I've got him exactly, this is it. Let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them tomorrow, and I will do as the king has asked. Another cliffhanger, cut to the credits, we'll pray, we'll come back next week. What in the world do you do with this beginning vignette in Esther chapter five? Remember, Esther is is going into the king, with the request that he reverse an irreversible law. The laws of the Persians and the Medes, you might remember, that that come with the king's authority written in the king's book, they were not reversible. And if the king was going to be predisposed to be generous to Esther and and grant this request on our behalf, he stood to lose, remember, 10,000 talents invested into his bank account. Maybe not a whole lot in light of the entire Persian kingdom, but some scholars say it was about half of his annual tax revenue. And not only that, if, if he were to be predisposed in this, to, to grant Esther's request to change the edict that had been sent out, he, he risked something more than 10,000 talents. He, he risked losing face. No one, no king, no Persian king changes an edict. And Esther she's going to have to reveal her identity and risk his response for not being forthright up front. And unlike Moses, she got no burning bush beforehand telling her that God has called her to this, go and do this. She didn't get a still small voice in the wind telling her that I'm with you, I'm going ahead of you. No miracle to convince her of God's presence, no miracle to change the heart of a skeptical king before she gets there. She was going to have to trust in the God of the promise and and allow the God of the promise to use the gifts that he has given her. What's going on in this first little vignette, I I think it's helpful to understand what's happening here in in light of something else we find in the Bible in in Matthew chapter 10. So we're not going to jump ahead to the end of Esther, we're going to go all to the New Testament. Matthew chapter 10 verse 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this to them. And I think this is helpful in understanding what's happening here with Esther at this point in the story. Jesus says, behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. I'm sending you out to declare the good news of my name to a bunch of wolves. I'm sending you out vulnerable as sheep, but I'm not sending you out to behave like sheep. Cheap or vulnerable, yes, but they're somewhat stupid. They're not super aware of their surroundings. Wolves roll into their midst, they tend to jump right into the wolf's mouth. I'm sending you out vulnerable, yes, but I'm sending you out to be shrewd as serpents. Now be careful here. Whenever we read about serpents or snakes anywhere outside of the book of Genesis, we tend to import all sorts of moral evil into the idea of a snake being present, right? And that happens with our use of the word shrewd too. But the word shrewd right here literally means practically wise and sensible. It's exactly what a snake is. A snake is extremely aware of its surroundings. It knows when to be still, when to strike, when to get under the rock, how to navigate its circumstances and situations. And Jesus is saying, I'm sending you out vulnerable as sheep amongst wolves that look to devour you, but don't jump in their mouths. Be sensible and be wise in your approach and in how you navigate your life amongst them. Esther chapter five, and this brief vignette of Esther at this point in the story, I think we're seeing the redeeming work of a gracious God to a shrewd gift that God had given her from birth. You might remember how specifically earlier in the story, the writer of Esther spoke often of how Esther wasn't granted favor with people in the palace, she won favor with people in the palace. She was able to recognize her situations and her surroundings, She went to the man in charge of the king's pleasures and said, what do you think I should do when I go in there? Esther had a practical sensibility and a a perception to be able to perceive her situation and respond accordingly for her own advancement, but now, a heart awakened to the God of the promise, something new coming about in her, I think we're seeing now, it'll be developed in the rest of the story, the redeeming work of God and a gift that he had given her from birth. I don't think Esther is being timid here. I don't think she's being scared to the point of retreat. I think she's being very shrewd. I think she's going into the room vulnerable as a sheep, knowing without being invited by the king into his presence meant certain death. But I'm going in vulnerable but I'm not dependent only on my plan. I'm not ultimately dependent on my shrewdness. I'm not ultimately dependent on how I think I can work a situation. I'm going in dependent not on myself, but on the God who is covenanted in provinces with his people. Why do I think that? The writer reminded us that Esther spent three days fasting day and night without food and water in preparation for going into this moment with the king do you remember that's one of the most like, detailed parts of the story so far do you remember how the writer told us that women were prepared to go into the king when he invited them 12 months of beautification 12 months of rituals because the king liked his women a certain way Esther spends three days and nights fasting, no food and water, as she prepares to go to the king in a moment when he hadn't called on her. Remember, 30 days have gone. He hasn't called for her attention. He hasn't called, hasn't desired her to come be with him. Preparing to go into a time with him, uninvited, which meant certain death. She did not spend all the time that she's got getting herself ready. She fasts, no food, no water, You would normally associate prayer with that. The writer doesn't say they prayed, but you could assume they probably prayed. Rather, she goes into this moment weak. Have you ever spent three days with no food, no water? You don't come out looking your best self. The writer doesn't say that there was prayer going along with his fasting, this dependent cry out to God to do what only God can do, but I think he shows us that dependence in Esther going in in the weakness of fasting, having called out on God to move. This is Esther being shrewd as a serpent, going in with a plan, but vulnerable as a sheep, dependent on the God of the promise to do what only he can do. And I say shrewd because she went in with a plan inviting them to these two feasts, it wasn't fear and timidity. Do you realize that when, when Esther invites them to the second feast, if it pleases the king to grant my wish and fulfill my request, let the king and Haman come to the feast that I will prepare for them and tomorrow I'll do as the king has said. Do you realize that she ties Xerxes' attendance at the second banquet with an advanced commitment to grant her request? Twice now, He has committed to do whatever she would ask. Just by showing up, Xerxes is implicitly putting himself in the place to have to say yes. And by inviting Haman, she makes sure he's there both times as well, twice as a witness to Xerxes' willingness and making sure that when Xerxes leaves that second banquet, he doesn't go to his advisors and his mind be changed and it be his word against Esther's. Esther has a plan, but Esther isn't ultimately dependent anymore on her shrewdness in her plan. She's dependent upon the God of the promise. And she goes in weakness and vulnerability. She's choosing that path over the path of strength. But if she begins to take us down this particular path and journey, the the writer stops. He doesn't take us any further there in in Esther's development and the way that God continues to work there. He takes us down a different road. He switches scenes, so to speak, in the middle of the story. See if Esther begins to take us down this path of weakness and vulnerability and potential sacrifice, now the writer is going to take us down the other path that had presented itself, the the path of self-sufficiency, the path of self, the path we'll ultimately see of pride. Look at verse nine. Haman went out that day joyful and glad of heart. But when Haman saw Mordecai in the king's gate, that he neither rose nor trembled before him, he was filled with wrath against Mordecai. Now remember, at this point, Haman had it all. He had been promoted over Mordecai and had the position, he had the throne. People were bowing in honor and respect to him. He had the house, he had the stuff but he didn't have the thing his heart wanted most. He didn't have the respect and the significance that he wanted from Mordecai. I mean, what is it? Just think for a minute. What is it in us that that does this? What creates in us this unquenchable thirst for what we don't have? I mean, what is it that leaves us unable to enjoy contentment because we're always missing this thing. Friends, the writer of Esther is about to give us a master class on the work of pride in the human heart. Watch it unfold here. Look at verse 10. Nevertheless, Haman restrained himself and went home and he, and he sent and he brought his friends and his wife Zeresh. So he gathers around him, everyone who will listen to him talk about himself. And Haman recounted to them the splendor of his riches. Like, look at my house. You guys have seen where you are, right? It's the biggest on the block. Seen all those chariots out there? Have I shown you my wine cellar recently? Do you think they weren't aware of all that stuff? I mean, how How often? Honestly, just be honest. How often are our invitations of hospitality just invitations for people to come and let us marvel at ourselves? It's what happens. Pride working itself out in the human heart. But he's not done, he's not done. Look, I'm jumping ahead, he's not done. He recounted to them the splendor of his riches and the number of his sons. Do you think his wife needed to be reminded of that? Those birth stories were all over the internet at that point. She knew how many sons she had given birth to. But no, he's going to go on about it. And all the promotions with which the king had honored him, how he had advanced him above all the officials and the servants of the king. Have y'all heard this story? Yeah, have I told you? Have I told you what Xerxes did for me? Sit down, it's a good story. I'll tell you again. And then he's not done. Haman said, even Queen Esther let no one but me Come with the king to the feast that she prepared. And tomorrow, also I am invited by her together with the king. Yet all of this is worth nothing to me, so long as I see Mordecai the Jew sitting at the king's gate. You see, what... What Haman really craved, what he he really wanted above all these things was not simply the significance of all these things. What Haman really wanted was to be seen as significant by everyone. Are you familiar with the feeling at all? C.S. Lewis said that pride is the ruthless, sleepless, unsmiling concentration upon self And pride gets no pleasure out of having something only out of having more of it than the next man. Lewis would go on to say that pride makes everything a means to an end. Pride makes everything around us at our fingertips in our life simply a means to an end of significance or respect or approval. It's why Haman is getting no satisfaction from everything that he's recounting to his wife and to his friends. He doesn't care about those things and that position. Ultimately, what he wants is the respect. And Mordecai is the fly in his ointment. Lewis is right. I love it when he says that pride is sleepless. Pride is a 24 hour a day, seven day a week, ego calculus going on in your heart you're always adding things up around you looking at your circumstances looking at your situations asking yourself am I getting what I deserve here am I being appreciated here how am I being regarded here how am I looking here how does this make me look Pride makes everything a means towards this end. What about me? What about me? What about me? It is a a 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week, sleepless concentration on the self. Esther said, if I have found favor in your sight... Haman is demanding significance in everyone else's eyes. The writer, he he wants us to see this play out a little bit more. Look at verse 14. Then his wife Zeresh and all of his friends said to him, They're they're gonna counsel him now, right? Haman is caught up in a cycle. And they're gonna give him some counsel. Then his wife and his friends said to him, let a gallows 50 cubits high be made. And in the morning, tell the king to have Mordecai hanged upon it. Then go joyfully with the king into the feast. And this idea pleased Haman. And he had the gallows made. Now here is where chapter numbers and verse numbers ruin a good story. And this is where the ambition is gonna jump in here for us this morning. So pray, you've gotta keep reading. To see the contrast, to see the juxtaposition, to see the reversals, to see all the writer of Esther is trying to show us and that God is doing to point our eyes somewhere else. You've got to keep reading. We're going to keep walking this path of self. Chapter six, verse one, on that night, the king could not sleep. And he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the chronicles, and they were read before the king. Oh, Just so happens the king can't sleep. He won't read to himself. So bring me a book. And they bring him the book of the Chronicles. Does that sound familiar at all if you've been with us in the story? Have we heard this book mentioned before? Well, the writer of Esther is about to remind you this was the book that was written. That the deeds of, of Mordecai were written in when Mordecai heard about an assassination attempt against the king and went and told Esther. And Esther went and told the, the king. And Xerxes went and researched the, the, the account and found it to be true, and had the loyalty of Mordecai recorded in the book in his presence, right? Now they go pick a book out to read to him when he can't sleep, and it's this one. And it was found, written, how Mordecai had told Bigtha, told of Bigtha and Teresh. And the two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Xerxes. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed on Mordecai for this? What honor and distinction was bestowed on Mordecai? Do you remember? None, his enemy got promoted in his place. So the king's young men who attended him said, nothing's been done for Mordecai. And the king's like, wait a minute, I hear somebody. Who's in the court? Like, who's here? It just so happens, right? At this point, it just so happens is another character in the story. We're going to get it, it just so happens next week, all right? So hold your horses. It just so happens someone else is in the court. And the king realizes it. Who's in the court? Now, Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that he had prepared for him. Let's see the scene. Like, read it like a human. All of a sudden, the king can't sleep. He's being reminded of the loyalty of Mordecai that went unpaid for, that went unresponded to. Meanwhile, coming into that very moment is Haman, who's already built the 75-foot gallow to have Mordecai hanged on it, coming into the king because he knows he can ask the king whatever he wants and get whatever he wants. Who's so gonna ask to have this done to Mordecai? He's coming in. The king is coming to his senses as to what didn't happen back in the past. And so the king's young men tell him Haman is here. Standing in the court, and the king said, let him in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, what should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? I mean, I wanna see Haman's face. Like, in eternity, I hope that God shows us the Bible somehow, we get to watch it. I wanna see his face, like, what? <laughs> but Haman is going to lack the shrewdness of Esther. Haman said to himself, whom would the king delight to honor more than me? Huh. I've been having to talk about myself all day. Now the king's gonna do it. So Haman said to the king, for the man whom the king delights to honor, I'm sorry, buttoned up his jacket, you know. Let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn. Very important. I don't want those new robes. I want robes robes people have seen you in. And the horse the king has ridden and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let those robes and the horses be handed over to the one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor. Let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. That is it. No more talking about myself. Everybody can talk about me now. I got the king's robe on the king's horse. I got a herald out in front of me. This is what it looks like for the king to take delight in you. Because that's what it means when the king puts his robes on you. He takes delight in you. He doesn't just honor you. So the king said to Haman, hurry, take those robes and the horse just as you have said, and do so to Mordecai the Jew who sits at the king's gate and leave out nothing that you have mentioned. (sighs) The blood in Haman's face had to just rush out of his head. I can't wait to see it. Like the moment of utter whiplash. Like he just built this whole thing up. I mean, you know how quick your pride can run amok in your mind. And you can take a momentary situation and all of a sudden, you're president. It's all done in his mind. Go and do that. You be that noble official. Go and do it for Mordecai. It's very important you see the reversals being set up again. Mordecai, I, I, I didn't, I failed to deal with that loyalty thing and His enemy was promoted over him. Now the the man the king delights to honor, it's it's not you. It's, It's your enemy. So Haman took the robes and the horse. And he dressed Mordecai. Read it like a human. He dressed Mordecai. He led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, thus shall it be done to the man of the kingdom. Like, I mean, Mordecai, I mean, Haman's not walking down proud in front of the horse. This is the king, the man delights to honor. No, 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 no. this is the king, the man delights to honor. Louder, Haman. One more time. But Mordecai, verse 12, returned to the king's gate, but Haman hurried to his house, mourning with his head covered. When this part of the story started, who was mourning with their head covered? Who was at the king's gate mourning with their head covered, sackcloth and ashes? It's Mordecai. Who's wearing the king's robes? Who's covered in, whose head is covered and who's in mourning now? Something is happening. Haman told his wife Zeresh and all of his friends everything that had happened to him. Then his wise men and his wife Zeresh said to him, if Mordecai before whom you have begun to fall is of the Jewish people, you will not overcome him, but will surely fall before him. If there was ever a moment for Haman to come to his senses, if there was ever a moment in this story for Haman to realize all the animosity, all the bitterness, all the scheming, all the plotting, all the planning, all of it was for naught. If there was ever a moment for him to come to his senses and repent, this was it. But while they were still talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. Dun, 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 dun. That's our cliffhanger for the week. Two, two paths, two, two roads diverged in, in front of Esther. She chose the one less traveled we saw last week, the path we get a glimpse of this week of weakness and dependence over the path of pride. And in doing so, in the gracious work of our heavenly father, even now, Esther is pointing our hearts forward to another who too would choose a path of weakness over strength. You see, in a way that Esther can only point to as she enters into a throne room that no one else could rightly enter, inviting the wrath of the king in order to protect others from it, in a way that she can only direct our hearts towards Jesus, the very son of God who who did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather emptied himself and took on our form, he too entered into a throne room that no one else could rightly just walk into. See, in the Jewish temple, only the high priest could could enter the innermost court of the temple, the throne room, so to speak, the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelled, To go into that place without God's direct invitation was to invite certain death. And God had given his direct invitation to the high priest on a certain day. He was to come at a certain time in a certain way. And anyone coming apart from that direct invitation, the consequence was death. The book of Hebrews says that Jesus entered into that throne room of God's presence on our behalf. And when he did, he took our sins with him. When he did, he took with him our 24-7 sleepless giant of pride. And when he did, he suffered the consequences that you and I deserve. You see, unlike Haman, who was forced to reverse places with Mordecai, Jesus voluntarily took our place. He suffered what we deserved. He's the one who made a way for us to now boldly enter God's throne room of grace. And while we talk about our access to God being free in the sense it's of his grace, it wasn't cheap. See, as sinners, death is required before we can enter the presence of a holy God. And our peace with God has been paid for in Jesus' blood. He took what we deserve so that we can have by grace through faith in him what only he deserves. Paul says God made him sin who knew no sin that we might become. This is a huge word even in the story of Esther. The righteousness of God in him. Jesus would pray to his father in John chapter 17. Father, Father, Give them the glory that you gave me before the foundation of the world. And in Jesus, laying down his life, being stripped, naked, and nailed on that cross, dying in our place for our sins, he made it possible for you and I to be clothed in his royal robes of righteousness. The glory that Jesus has with the Father that he prays for us to have by the grace of the Father is the eternal affection and delight of the Father. You and I, by the grace of God through faith in Christ, we get to wear the royal robes of Jesus. We are the ones who wear the robes of his righteousness that we might know that. The King God our Father delights in us, loves us, is pleased with us in his Son. Those robes of righteousness are the thing that allow us to come boldly into the presence of God's grace, into the presence of his kingdom, into the presence of his throne room with no fear. I mean, what cultivates the courage to to put the sleepless animal of pride to death? What cultivates the courage and the conviction to to begin to walk this path of weakness? Friends, true humility is born by continuing to see Jesus reversing places with you at such a high cost to himself. See, the more we continue to see Jesus paying the price that we deserve for our sin. The more we continue to see Jesus dying in our place, the death that we deserve to die, the more our hearts are reminded of the sacrifice of Jesus in our place for our sin, the more aware we become of the gravity of our sin. And the more aware we are of just how grievous our pride in our sin is to a holy and righteous God, and the more we see Jesus dying to pay that price for us in our place, the more the work of God's Spirit cultivates in us a true and right humility. We realize that it was for me he had to die. And the more we continue to see him not just reversing roles with us, not just taking what we deserved, but willingly doing it. Not coerced, not schemed. He said, no one takes my life. I lay my life down. Continuing to see Jesus again and again, not just taking what we deserved, but willingly, willingly suffering the death that we deserve to die for our sins. Friends, there is no greater cultivator of true affection, of true affirmation. What love is there like his? It's continuing to see Jesus again and again that we might enjoy him more and more and that joy begins to express itself in an unbridled freedom to come boldly into the presence of God our Father, confident in the righteous robes of his Son, that he sees us in his Son, and we can come boldly before him because he's not like Xerxes at all. You see, because of Jesus, approaching God is not like approaching Xerxes. We don't have to worry about the axemen behind the throne ready to chop off our heads for coming in uninvited. Our God invites us into his presence constantly. He wants us with him. He wants to hear us. He wants to speak to us, not just on an appointed date, not just one time in eternity, but right now. Constantly, he wants us. And when we come, We don't have to come with some shrewd plan to figure out how to get what it is that we want. The right words to say, do I stand, do I kneel, do I walk, do I lay down? Do I put ashes on my head? Do I wear certain clothes? Do I not wear certain clothes? Do I have to set up the environment to get what I want? No, there's no shrewdness necessary in coming to him. He wants us there. He delights in us there. He sees us in the righteousness of his son. He wants us to talk to him. He loves for us to be with him. He loves, loves, loves to do for us what's necessary, for us to be continually conformed to the image of his son, to prosper and to bear fruit. If you and I, as such sinful and broken fathers, know how to give good gifts, Jesus said to our sons, to our kids, how much more so our heavenly father does he not just know, but desire? to give to us all that's necessary to prosper for his glory and our joy friends it's because of jesus that we can know now that nothing and no one now and for all of eternity nothing and no one can ever separate us from this affection of god nothing And no one that you could ever imagine or dream up of in your mind could ever separate you from the affection of God that is yours, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And nothing and no one that you could ever imagine or even dream up in your worst case scenario can separate you from the gracious invitation of your father to come, to be with him, to talk to him, to be in his presence now. Nothing and no one can ever separate you from the love of God that is yours in Christ. Which is why I love the way the writer of Hebrews says it in Hebrews chapter four. In light of this, let us then with confidence. Because we, by the grace of God through faith in Christ, we have the royal robes of Christ. Christ. Let us then with confidence draw close, draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. As one pastor said, our king has an open door policy for his people now and forever. Friends, we are going to give you a couple of minutes this morning to come boldly before your Heavenly Father. Friends, if you're here this morning and and you came in this morning and wouldn't consciously call yourself a, a follower of Jesus, Jesus holds out to you this morning by the grace of God, the the promise to clothe you in the robes of his righteousness. If you would turn from your sense of self-sufficiency, if you would turn from your sin, if you would turn from the idea that a day is going to come that you will stand before God and you've been a good enough person, you've worked hard enough, you've done enough good things, that should merit for something. If you could turn from the dependence upon yourself... And by the grace of God, through faith in Christ, turn to Christ as sufficient for you now and forever. The promise of God to you to come boldly before him right now into his presence with no fear is yours. And for those of you who are here this morning who have tasted of the grace of God through faith in Christ, these next few minutes and the minutes continuing on throughout this day are God's invitation to you by the grace that he has shown you through his son to come to him boldly and fearlessly. You have his affection. You have his heart. You have his ear. So I'm going to pray and then we're going to give you a couple of minutes and then together as God's people for those who have repented of their sins through faith in Christ, we are going to remember Jesus' sacrifice in our place for our sins, his substitutionary sacrifice for us, his reversal with us, his going into that throne room in our place, taking what we deserved and giving us what only he deserved. We're going to remember that together and proclaim our confidence in that as his people as we take communion. We're going to sing. we're gonna be sent out from here as his children. So let me pray, and we'll give you a couple of moments. Father, we thank you this morning for the continued reminder of your deep and abiding love for us. God, we need you to do what only you can do by your Holy Spirit to expose the, the deep roots of pride in our hearts. And at the same time, give us a renewed sense, a renewed picture, a renewed sight of your mercy to us in your son that our heart would be overwhelmed again by your grace that we might put that pride to death. God, cultivate in us through a renewed view of your grace a humility that is born out of a delight in you. We ask that you would do that this morning for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name.